You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. I read a lot of stories about uh, heroic moms and uh, sacrificial moms and humble moms and all those things this week, but there was one that stuck out to me. It was about a woman named Stephanie Decker. Uh, Stephanie told her story of some great tragedy that she went through, and as I was listening to her tell that story, I thought, well, that's, that's a picture of life and motherhood and our spiritual journeys. What happened for Stephanie was um, she was living in Henryville, Indiana, and a tornado came through, and they knew the tornado was coming, and so she hunkered down with her kids, and she said, and this kind of caught my attention when I was watching her on a video share her testimony, she said, I covered us up with a blanket. I thought there's no way we're going to survive this. I told my kids I loved them, and I thought those would be my last words to them. And I thought, last words? We've been talking about it in this series. Last words are lasting words. And she said the tornado came through. It peaked at about 175 miles per hour. When that tornado was done, there wasn't a single piece of plywood left. She said, we had a 6,500 square foot house, a very large house, she said. She said, I looked around, there wasn't a single place that I thought that would have been safe. But she survived that tornado. And when they started looking around and seeing all the debris, her eight-year-old son, she had two kids that she was covering with that blanket, and her eight-year-old son got up and started to look around, and she realized she couldn't get up. Her legs had been severed, and she was bleeding out, and her eight-year-old son said, there's a second tornado coming. And she didn't think that she could possibly survive, and she convinced him after a conversation to go and get some help, to run across the street and get one of the neighbors, and the neighbor came over, and she was panicking, and Stephanie said, I had to calm her down. Now, I'm bleeding out. She's the one whose legs are, she's like, we don't have much time. (laughs) Like, I need you to get it together, she said to her neighbor. He said, there's a police officer who lives down the road. Go get him. He'll know what to do. And he came with four people, a rescue crew, and Stephanie said when she saw the face of the guy that was leading the rescue crew, she saw agony. She could tell that he didn't think that she would make it. It took four people just to lift her out of the debris. She did lose both of her legs, but she did make it. I thought about that in light of what it's like to be a mom since today's motherhood, but in life. I mean, we need a miracle or we're all in trouble. She didn't think there's any way that she could possibly make it. The storms just keep coming. The people that are willing to sacrifice and lay their lives down, they get scarred, but the scars are reminders of love. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 49, before Jesus ever went to the cross, that we are engraved on his hands. And then he's got nail-pierced hands, as Hebrews 12 tells us. He endured the cross. It's suffering, it's shame, because of the joy that was set before him. And that was a reconciled relationship with us. And he didn't stay dead. He rose. Amen. And he offers us life. And he wants us to live this life together. I've titled today's message, We Are Family. From the book of John, not from Sister Sledge. But we are family. And we're going to be in John chapter 19. So far we've mostly been in Luke, a little bit of Matthew. Uh, Today we're in John. And so John chapter 19, uh, Jesus is on the cross. We're talking about a crucified Savior. That is one thing that makes him uncommon. And the crucifixion of Jesus, you'll see that it's often mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus who was crucified, you crucified him. The cross is central to Christianity. 
Some people will use Christianity as a way to kind of improve their life and help them out. But if you miss the cross, you're missing the whole deal. Uh, J.C. Ryle, he says it like this. The cross is the foundation of the Bible. If you've not yet found out that Christ crucified is the foundation of the whole volume, you have until now read your Bible to very little profit. Your religion is a heaven without a sun, an ark without a keystone, a compass without a needle. That's not very helpful. A clock without a spring. He was from a previous generation. He did not have a watch like some of us have, digital. A lamp without oil. It will not comfort you. It will not deliver your soul from hell. And so we enter into the cross today. It was six hours that Jesus hung two feet and spoke seven words, seven statements in six hours. is not a lot of words. And we're told that all of his disciples abandoned him when he was arrested. They were gone. And we don't know exactly who was at the cross and who wasn't because there's not an attendance list. I'm sorry, Baptist, there's not a list of who was there and who wasn't there. But we know that John came toward the end and he came close enough to the cross with Jesus' mom that they could hear him talking. And so just a couple verses today. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. We've heard him say already some powerful last words. Father, forgive them. The very people that are crucifying him, forgive them. They know not what they do. We saw his scandalous grace. There's one guy who's a murderer, a thief, He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Never baptized. Never went on a mission trip. For all we know, never knew a single verse. But Jesus said, you're with me. Scandalous grace. Why have you forsaken me? But here, look at this. He's in pain. I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain, I cut my finger this week. All I could think about was myself. And Jesus is thinking about his mom and one of his disciples. Look what he says. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John who's writing this book, he humbly calls himself the one that Jesus loved, standing nearby, Jesus loved all of them, by the way, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, but John's not his biological brother. And Jesus does have biological brothers. Woman, behold your son, verse 27. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Hmm. Last words are lasting words. Can you imagine being Mary in this situation? We see here that Jesus is saying something revolutionary about family. He's talking about a faith family. He's not abolishing the biological family. There are things to learn from that, but here he chooses somebody. Some scholars think that John might be a cousin to Jesus. No one thinks he's his brother. Jesus has biological brothers. Several of their names are listed, multiple passages in the Bible. If you grew up Catholic and you were told that is not the case, that's because they're trying to fit their theology into the Bible rather than getting their theology from the Bible. And the thought is that that Mary was a perpetual virgin, so Jesus can't possibly have brothers and sisters, but the Bible says he has brothers and sisters. So, we'll look at some of those verses in a little bit. Why does he pick John? One of the things that we learn about God's family from this passage is that its foundation, what it's built on, is actually faith. And so our first point, we'll put it up on the screen, faith is the foundation of God's family. 
Faith, not your DNA, not birth order, none of that. God doesn't have any grandkids. Your parents loving Jesus, your uncle being a pastor, like none of that stuff, that doesn't have anything to do with you being in God's family. John chapter 1, verse 12. To those who believe, he gives the right to be called children of God. Ephesians chapter 1, you've been adopted into God's family. When you place your faith in Jesus, you can then call God Father. You're in this family. And it's faith that makes that happen. But here you've got people that have faith in him as well as his mom, his biological mom. Can you imagine being Mary at the cross? Unlike anybody else, there's a unique bond here. We were teaching through Judges uh, two or three months ago and I gave an analogy because one of the themes in Judges is that when we cry, when God's children cry out, he comes, he responds to our prayers. And I said, I was in a small group at one point in this church's history when my kids were all smaller and we have four of them. And the small group, we had 15, 20 people in it that were adults and then we had like 9,000 kids, all right? So everybody had like four more kids. And we hired like two babysitters. I'm sorry if you were one of those babysitters. We really do love you. Um, but what would happen is there'd be some crash. Kid would cry. A mom, never a dad, always a mom, would get up and go. And then it always, I would be just amazed. It was always her kid, whichever mom. It wasn't the same mom every time. And I joked and I said, it's like you guys have a sonar radar and you know your kids cry. And I was trying to make the point, God knows his kids cry. Well, I was reading this week, you really do. There are actual studies on this, and people have taken it. It's, it's kind of a weird study to me, but listen to this. Uh, in one study, researchers recorded the cries of 24 infants. Now, did they just wait? Do you make the kid cry? Seems like an ethical dilemma in this study. They played them back to 20 different mothers. So, okay, so there's four kids that don't even belong to these ladies. But all right. 24 infants crying, 20 mothers listen. They concluded... They should have come to my small group. I could have saved them time and money. That every mom knows their own infants cry. Yeah. But another study found, so this got a little bit more scientific, that mothers' brains were more responsive to the sounds of their own children's voices than the voices of other children. The researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging. Maybe three of you know what that is. Please don't email me if I mess that up. They were measuring the brain activity in the mother's as they listened to recordings of their own child's voice and the voices of other children, they found that the auditory cortex, I don't know, I'm a pastor. Oh, here it is. The part of the brain that processes sound <laughs> was more active in response to the mother's own child's cry. Why? Well, let's follow the science. I'm joking around here. Um, <laughs> they say that it's because of hormones. So hormones, when a mother gives birth... Her body releases a hormone called oxytocin, which helps create a bond between her and the baby. It's not just at this moment, but in breastfeeding and other intimate moments, this takes place. And then uh, this article that's talking about the science of this actually says, studies have shown that the brains of mothers and their children become synchronized when they're interacting with one another, which further strengthens their bond. So there really is no other relationship quite like a child and a mom. Now, Mary is the only mother that has an adult son who's never sinned against her. Think about that. And then she's watching him be murdered. Can you imagine? Like, think about what that was like for Mary. 
most mothers, when they see their child suffering, will say things like this. I would, I would take that if I could. Cancer? I was texting last night with a gentleman in our church, Zach Schmidt. Some of you have been praying if you're on our prayer team for Solomon. Solomon's his two-year-old son who's had cancer and been battling at the hospital for the past seven months, since about September. I was asking him how they were doing and what was going on. And he just kept talking about how amazing Catherine, his wife, is. And I didn't ask Catherine, did you ever have this thought, like I would take this? Um, Zach gave some pretty intimate details. I won't read all of those to you, but uh, I printed off part of the text with his permission. And I'm so sorry, Catherine, I did not text with you. <laughs> but he says, we were showered and immersed with prayers and love from our small group. There's some amazing people at Southbridge, like Carrie Lewis. Carrie, thank you. Uh, she led a prayer update and call every week while Solomon was in the hospital. Um, the small group came and serenaded them while they were in the hospital during Christmas time, but um, he talks about Catherine. He says this, she played an enormous role in saving Solomon's life. She fought tirelessly the entire time for what was best for him, even if it wasn't always what the medical staff wanted to do. She was undeterred, and I don't think there's a better example of sacrificial love than hers. A lot of times that's what, not all moms are like that, but a lot of times that's what moms are like. Can you imagine what Mary must have thought as she saw Jesus hanging on, hanging on the cross? But she can't go to the cross because one, she's not sinless. Two, she's not God. So even if she got on the cross, it's not going to accomplish for us. Mary's a sinner. Mary's human. So she's got to watch. But if you were watching your son be murdered and he said something, not just said something, but said something to you, that would be powerful. Here Jesus looks at his mom and says, woman, this is your son. And she doesn't go, oh, no, no, I've got other sons. Says to John, this is your mom. I have another mom. Nope, oh, she's probably there. And say, so, I'm not worthy, Jesus, I can't do that. This is a huge responsibility. See, it was the responsibility in this culture of the the oldest son, almost every, every scholar agrees that Joseph is dead at this point, and so Mary's a widow, and it's the responsibility of the oldest son, which would be Jesus, to take care of in every way, financial, medical, every way, take care of your mom. And Jesus is handing this responsibility to John, and John does it. But why John when there are biological Brothers, if you don't think there's biological brothers, I'll just give you, just so you know, I'm not just making this up, or hey, the pastor said this, but I don't know where that's at in the Bible. Um, Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, uh, we'll see some biological brothers there that come in. Is this not the, the son of Mary and brother of James? And you get listed the brothers. They're there. We know they didn't believe in him. John chapter 7 tells us that. Um, verses 3 through 5, you want some context, but in verse 5, it says, they didn't believe in him. They're trying to convince him how they think he should do his ministry. Hey, if you're so awesome, why don't you go show everybody? Jesus is on a time frame and a plan. It's in conjunction with what God's telling him to do, but his brothers are telling him to do something else. They're not even believers. Hmm. Even non-believers have opinions of how the church should go. Huh. That's interesting. And so here you've got Jesus selecting John. But he's not dismantling the biological family. In fact, that was God's plan. It was his institution that he put together. Now, if you look at the majority of sociologists and psychologists, they'll tell you the family unit is key for just human thriving, flourishing, 
that if you have dinners together, that your kids actually are healthier physical, physically, they eat more vegetables because you're watching. I'm just kidding. But there's just like practical things that come about just from a, just having family dinners. If you just Google that on studies, they're just having a family. Now we're all messed up. We don't even know what gender is. And so we get the structure all messed up, but it was God's plan from the beginning. So you see family all throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter two, it's not good for man to be alone. God doesn't create him a golfing buddy. He doesn't give him a boss to like a manager to follow him around and go, I don't know, you didn't name that animal right. How many, you didn't pluck enough fruit today. Like he didn't give him a neighbor. They could just, you know, sit on the porch and smoke cigars and talk about how the day went. He gave him a wife. And he established family at that moment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, says, for this reason, a man shall leave, wait a minute, Adam doesn't have a mother and father. So anybody that says, well, yeah, back then that was the plan, but you just got to adapt to the times. No, God was instituting, this is how this works. One man, one woman in relationship, and they're told to then go be fruitful and multiply. So go have a bunch of kids and lead on this earth. But what about single parent? That still can be a family. What about two guys? No. The Bible's actually really clear that that's not good. What about if there's three people? That's coming, by the way. What about a really old man married to a young kid? That's coming. Oh, that's what it says. Leave your mother and father. You establish a new family unit. Be united to your wife. The two become one. You celebrate that through sexual intimacy with one another. And then you start having kids. Well, this is a great plan. It starts getting broken when Satan comes and doesn't just tempt Eve. He's attacking the family unit. Adam doesn't fulfill his role. He's passive. And then there's a curse that takes place. But they have kids. Genesis chapter 4, right after that. And so anybody that's like, wow, the problem with families are dysfunctional. They all are. They always have been. The first kids that we have, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, there's some kids. It doesn't even take a full 10 verses before one kills the other one. So some of you, moms today, may have this sense of like, ah, I'm not as good. Whatever he's going to say, he's going to read Proverbs 31. I'm going to feel guilty. Well, listen, um, you haven't done it as poorly as Adam and Eve, all right? They ruined all of humanity, and they have kids. They- actually are killing each other. Like you think they're killing each other when you hear them wrestling upstairs or whatever. No, they really killed each other. But it doesn't mean that God said that we're done with family. Genesis chapter five, we've got a genealogy, which is boring to read when you're just reading your, it's a story of a family, a list of names and every person has a story. Then Genesis chapter six, we get the, it, everything is messed up. I'm gonna destroy this whole place. But he preserves the family. It's Noah and his family in the ark that are protected. Then you keep going and you see stories like Abraham and Abraham can't have a family. He's unable to have children and God's promise to him is, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. And it's not just in stories and you can look at the book of Genesis as the stories of families. And so whether it's brothers and you see sibling rivalries and it's not just Cain and Abel, you, you know, you've got all these brother battles that are taking place and, and we've got stuff going on with the whole nation and then God tells the story through a family, Joseph all these different people. You get to Exodus, and maybe next Mother's Day I'll preach on Moses' mom. Because we talk a lot about abortion and, and, and fighting for life, and 
They didn't have the same procedures back then. They'd just kill a baby as soon as it was born. They didn't want it, and that was taking place. That was the government mandate. But she was courageous, and she stood up for life, and she put him in alligator-infested waters in the process, but still, she <laughs> saved him. And then God delivers commandments through him. And you look at those commandments and how they impact families. Exodus chapter 20, and, and you get this statements about generations. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. There's the commandments in there. And it says, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So their sin affects families. And then you've got verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. And the New Testament, we're told, is the first commandment with this promise in it. That your life actually will go well if you honor your parent. It doesn't say whether they're honorable how you interact with your biological family. And then you see, keep reading the Bible and you're like, oh, this actually happens. Because you read like Joshua and Achan sins. And guess what? His whole family pays. Or you see Rahab and Rahab's not even part, she's not even Jewish. She's not a part of Israel. But she believes in this God, this Jewish God, Yahweh, the New Old Testament calls him. And so God preserves her and her whole family. And you have people that convert to God and become part of a family in the Old Testament. How about Ruth and Naomi? Ruth and Moabite, they got their own culture. They have their own gods. And when tragedy strikes, she says, you're my people now. There's a loyalty, a faithfulness that takes place, a sacrifice, a loyal love. Hesed is the Hebrew word that Naomi receives from her daughter-in-law. It was more than just a legal relationship for them, though. And she says, your God will be my God. It's a conversion. And then through that, God's preserving this whole time, this line from Abraham through David. We read last week and the week before, Psalm 22, Psalm 31. David's fleeing his own son, Absalom, because of the dysfunction in their family. But God's using even that. And the Proverbs, you read the Proverbs, and Proverbs are oftentimes portrayed as a father giving skills for life to a son. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8 says, My son, hmm, your father's instruction, hear your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. And all moms and dads, amen, that's right. And we're the ones being spoken to, and... There are general truths about how life works throughout the Proverbs. Not promises. Not 100% of the time. These are Proverbs. But you get to the New Testament and things radically change. What Je Jesus says revolutionary things all the time. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. What? Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Blessed are those who mourn. Like he's saying these things that everybody's going, what are you talking? But the way he talks about family, we often just kind of gloss over that. He's not tearing apart what God established at the very beginning. One man, one woman. He's not dismantling. He's saying, but there's another, a deeper commitment that goes beyond just blood ties. It's a faith family. And we see it in multiple places. I'll give you one other, other than just this John 19 one, just so you know. I'm not making this stuff up. There's a situation in Mark chapter 3. Um, Jesus' opponents never deny his miracles, but they say they came from Satan, and he's been doing these miracles, and he's becoming popular there's people that he's teaching, and it says this in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers came. He's talking about his biological brothers. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? It was just a forgetful moment for Jesus. That's sarcasm. I'm just kidding. He, um, he's making them ask that question because he's about to teach them something. He knows who his mom is. He knows who his biological brothers are. And he knows what the audience will think when he asks that question. But then look at what he says. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. What do you think that felt like for some of them that had a really bad family? Or maybe their parents had already died and maybe they were an only child. They never had any siblings. And they look around and they see these people and and Jesus says, here's how you can define this. For whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and my sister and my mother. He's talking about a faith family. To do the will of God is an it's living out in action what we say we believe to be true. It's faith is this foundation of the family. And so we ask this question, why John? So going back to that question, why John? Well, you can see from the text a couple reasons. One, he shows up. There's power in just showing up, by the way. And so I'd ask you, in your life, in your faith relationships with other believers, who shows up for you and who do you show up for? I like this quote by Brene Brown I read this week. She talks about showing up, and she says, the willingness to show up changes us. It makes us a little braver each time. She's famous for talking about vulnerability. There are lots of um, self-help and leadership-type people that will say, you know, 80% or 90% of life is just showing up. I read one quote one time. It was, it was like 2% of your success is your talent, 8% is opportunity, and 90% is showing up. Listen, I don't, know the, I don't know what study that person got that from. None, by the way. Um, but they're just saying there's something about being present. And who's showing up for you? I think about my own wife. You know, we, we got a busy day today, and so we celebrated Mother's Day yesterday. She's a nurse, and I just asked our kids as we were going around the table, I said, Tell mom your favorite thing about all of them talked about her listening. Not just being there, listening. And as a nurse, I thought about what, like, in COVID, she'd get asked to do lots of things that were never part of her job before. And, and, and families couldn't come to the hospital. And coworkers are quitting. And she's literally physically saved people's lives. But when I listen to her tell her stories, and for HIPAA, I don't know any names, by the way, because you were one of her patients. Um, a lot of times it's just being there. Like, it's significant, you know, catch something in a chart, physically actually save somebody's life, but just being there for people is a huge part of transformation. Who's showing up for you? We don't know for sure that, you know, Matthew wasn't way off in the distance, but it appears the way the Bible account is is that all the disciples left, but, but John came. Maybe Mary said, hey, we've got to go. So, okay. He doesn't just show up. He steps up. You saw that passage, right? It says... Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now, the Bible doesn't say after the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, we don't hear about Mary anymore. So we don't know for sure how long she lived, how all of this went. But we know that he accepts responsibility here as his role as a son. We know the Bible talks about this language of spiritual sons and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual daughters and 
And, you know, everybody, you know, might think, oh, I don't want to be a mom or a son or a daughter. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a consultant to God's kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't need a consultant. It needs citizens. And these citizens are sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where I get that language. It says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. And so here you go. I'm reading that and I'm going, see, I just thought it was weird when I started going to church and people were calling each other brother. I thought that was strange. I didn't grow up in the church and come and be, hey, brother. I'm like, I'm not your brother. What are you talking about? I had a potluck. I'm like, I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. People talking about flying away, washing by blood, and I'm taking no shower in blood. What are you guys talking about? I thought people were just making this up. It was like church talk. No, that's what the Bible says. That there's a brotherhood that happens when you, we have a mutual father. He's our source of life. He is our authority. He's our guide. He's our protection. He's our father. And so him as our father, even if we speak different languages and wear different clothes and have different preferences, isn't that one of the crazy things about Christianity, that it's transcultural? Like you don't have to become American. You don't have to have whatever preferences that somebody at one church has. The Bible's not talking about it. That's not from the Bible. That's their preferences. And so... We have manifestations of the body of Christ, but we're talking about a huge family here. It's like, what do you think of when you think of family? Think about that. So when you think of family pictures, I think we've got a couple family pictures here. Maybe you're on there if you were on the internet. A couple, is that your kid? Another one here. That's how it really goes. No one buys that picture, but that's how it goes. Oh, there you go, exactly. Live footage right now from Atlantic Beach. There you go. Can you imagine a family picture of heaven? All nations? Hmm, see, that's interesting. And then we're bound together. But then you get local churches, and so there's the big church, the universal church, but then there's these local churches like Southbridge, and we talk about living as family. What does that look like? Well, it looks like showing up, and it looks like stepping up because there's power and presence, but then also accepting the role that God's given to you. Some of you are sons in the house. Who are your spiritual fathers? My spiritual father was not my biological father. In fact, it was the the young lady that was playing the keyboard today. Her dad led me to Christ and mentored me. And until I was able to feed myself spiritually, handle some of the attacks that come in life, he did those things for me. Sort of mentored us. Walks you through and helps you grow and gets you to... Do you have a mentor? Are you mentoring anybody? Listen, a church that doesn't have mentorship is a church that lacks maturity. So if you want a mentor and you don't have one, come see one of your pastors, myself, one of the other pastors that are on our staff. We've got several. We'd love to connect you with somebody. Now, we can't do it with every person, but every person should have somebody doing that. And you should be doing that for other people if you're at any level of maturity. That's part of being a family. Who's stepping up? Who's showing up? Who loves like this? And see, that faith is the foundation that binds this together, but it's also the family that's the foundation for your spiritual growth. That was God's plan. And so some people, you know, don't like the church or don't, you know, there's different criticisms. It's a dysfunctional family. I say, yeah, it is because <laughs> they're sinners. But our second point is this, that this is, this is God's greenhouse for growth. This is God's foundation for your spiritual growth, the church. 
And how do I know that to be true? We can read Acts chapter 2 and see what is a church. And it gives you these, you know, they're surrounded by the apostles, or their foundations of the, found, the apostles' teaching. And they would gather around and talk about what the apostles taught. And then they would pray. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. You see these differently break bread together, but they live in community with one another. They live in family. And then you see that beyond just that one passage because the New Testament, there's approximately, it depends on how you count them because some are mentioned in different ways, but they're the same thing, about 60 different one another commands in the New Testament that put in context or within the local church relationships. It's not just this is how you treat all people. This is how we're supposed to treat each other as family. And isn't it true that you treat your family different than everybody else? Some of you I don't know very well. If you came up to me and treated me like family at the grocery store, I'd be like, what? This is really weird. No, I'm not buying that for you. You're strange, man. I don't want to know about your athlete's foot. I'm not buying that cream for you. But when your family texts you and be like, hey, can you get me some? Yeah, there you go. Not saying anybody here would have athlete's foot. We're not going to do a foot washing ceremony at the end of this deal. But but you, you talk about different things. You have a different understanding and comfort level and the way you even handle conflict. And, and so then you read the one another's, and it's real popular for us to read, you know, love one another and serve one another. But have you read some of these, actually? Submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4.3. Why would you have to forgive one another? Because <laughs> when you put one dysfunctional person together with another dysfunctional person, you don't get function. <laughs> You have more dysfunction. So when you put one sinner together with another sinner, and even though we're in the church and we have Jesus and we're seen as righteous and holy, we still sin, right? Everybody, anybody admit that today? Hmm, three of us, all right, there we go. The rest of you are so good. It's awesome, I'm just kidding. Um, live in harmony with one another. Well, of course we would. <laughs> do not judge one another. Do not slander one another. Romans 14, James 4, do not grumble against one another. It's like Jesus went to church. Be hospitable. Why do we have to be told that? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Well, wait a minute. What if they don't like that? And Greet one another. We don't do it the way the Bible says. Care for one another. Be devoted to one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Comfort one another. Confess sins to one another. These require significant intimacy if they're actually going to happen. And it means that church has to be more than one guy standing up talking to a room full of people. There have to be relationships that actually take place that get more intimate. Who are your people? It doesn't have to be all these people, but you've got to have other people that in a faith relationship will do these things with you, confront your sin, confess sins, pray for one another. You've got to actually know what's going on. But you pray for each other without grumbling about each other and without slandering, without gossiping. Oh, wow, that's tough. So some people say, I don't go to church because it's dysfunctional. I don't go to church because there's hypocrites. Yeah, that's right. We all say things that in our ideal, real beliefs that we wish were true about us, but we're just not there yet. We're in process. So I say to people in our community when they say that, well, you should come. You'd fit right in. (laughs) I'm usually kind of offended by that. And then I go, well, you do do everything. And so we just go through it and talk a little bit and... And I would just encourage us as a church, and maybe this is make you feel like this isn't the place for me then. Um, that's okay. You can go to Imago Dei or Providence. We love them too and other churches in our community. But if somebody like says something hurtful to you um, in our church or does something that offends you or annoys you, say something back to them. That Stephanie Decker, I loved listening to her talk. She was talking about, so she lost both of her legs. Um, they showed a video of her surfing in Hawaii uh, with her prosthetics. 
And she said, I'm walking down the street. And she goes, I guess it's not normal to see somebody in a bathing suit walking down the street with prosthetics on. And this woman walked up to me and she just put her hands on my shoulders, which is kind of odd for a stranger to do, and says, I am terrified of the ocean. Please tell me it wasn't a shark. (laughs) She said, so I looked at this woman and thought, first of all, if you're terrified of the ocean, why are you in Hawaii? That's where they were, surrounded by ocean. And she just said, it was a shark, and walked away. (laughs) To which I thought, that's what that lady deserved. That's good. Because people say there aren't stupid questions. There are stupid questions. And here's what you get for being an idiot. I'm going to be sarcastic back to you. And then she said, she told her husband, she goes, that woman will never go in the ocean. Like, there goes that. Over. So some of you, you know, it's like, well, somebody said this and it bothered me or this person's there and I don't like them. And it's like, get over it. We all sin against each other. And if somebody comes to you and says something judgmental, gives you a look, confront their sin. Let's have that kind of freedom with each other. Hey, are you judging me? And like, we can get into what's going on. I sent this to my family uh, this week. I've had my kids before say, you know, this person at church, look, because you guys think you just go and talk about the sermon and the pastor. No, we talk about you too, just so you know. But I sent this text. I sent this text to my kids this week because they're giving each other a hard time. You got that meme there of the, there we go. The faces just look like such good sibling faces to me. You just stop looking at my outfit and keep your eyes on Jesus. And the meme actually is awesome because that's the role of the church in your spiritual growth. Now we get all these one another's and other instructions about how we're to function with one another and who leads in the church and what are the ordinances of the church and all these different pieces. But the point is to help us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so God uses then these relationships to transform us. And so what we do know happens with John is that it's about scholars debate, did Jesus die in 80, 30 exactly, or was it 33, 34? They don't know exactly when John died, but it was about 100. So 68 years, 70 years later, John dies. And here's what we know to be true. John's not the same guy when he dies as he was in the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, yeah, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. But do you ever read the stories about this guy? Do you, some of you read the Gospel accounts? And uh, not only does he tell his mom, hey, go jockey for position for me, and we see his ambition. He's the one who says, these Samaritans reject Jesus. He's like, let's call down fire from heaven. You got the power, Jesus. Let's get him. He's got a nickname, Son of Thunder. But you see a humility Later. He leads the church in Jerusalem. He leads the church in Ephesus. He calls the church his children, my dear children. He writes five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, which that's an interesting title for, it's about Jesus. Like if I wrote a book and I called it Scott, and you came to me and said, what's it about? Jesus. Why didn't you call it Jesus? Anyway, then he writes three more books, first, second, third John that aren't about him, and then, but isn't first, no, it's like a prequel, it's kind of a Star Wars thing, at any rate, then you get, he wrote the book of Revelation, and uh, several of the things he wrote, actually, were while he was on the island of Patmos, the book of Revelation tells us that that's where he was at, Patmos, for those of you who don't know, was an island for prisoners, political conflict would take place with Rome, Patmos, 
you do a crime, Patmos. But they had a lot of freedom when they were on the island. Except, it's a great reality TV show, you're living there with a bunch of criminals. Most of the people died of exposure or being killed by another criminal. You were responsible for your own food and shelter. But we're just dropping you off on an island. Government's not paying for three meals and a bed. And figure it out. Most historians will verify that John stayed in a cave and then his supplies were sent from his church family. That's family. And you read the writings that he writes. It's different than the guy who's talked about in the Gospels. The way he talks to people, humility and gentleness, a patience. Not like the guy goes, let's just destroy these people. <laughs> Be patient with one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. He's learning those things. What, he, we know that Mary lived somewhere between 41, 11 more years, and 47, 50, let's just say 15 more years, and he took care of her as a son. But then when he writes, he talks like he's a father. That God had to get him to that spot, and he used other people in the transformation process. That's what he does. John's the only gospel writer that records the foot washing that Jesus does for the disciples when he washes even Judas' feet. At the end of that, Jesus gives one of the one another's. A new commandment I give you, John 13, 34. Love one another. That's not a new commandment. That's in the Old Testament. The next part's what makes it a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. I've not seen that kind of sacrifice. You see... It's easy. It would be easy for me today to rail against like how bad our culture is with family, just general family. Like we can't even define what a woman is. Then we're trying to say this is marriage. And it's like, would you just use different words? And are, like, don't use, you really want God's plan? And then you say you don't believe in God. But what's going on? Like we could argue about that, fight about all that. Here's the reality. We need to clean up our own house before we start yelling at everyone. Hey, you should live like God says. That's ironic. <laughs> When you don't confess sins to one another and care for one another and carry each other's burdens and you're not living like the family that God told you you're supposed to be, but you're telling me who doesn't believe in God, you want me to live according to God's law? Huh. Don't do that. So how do we do that? Well, if we just took this one and applied it, love as I have loved... I told you last week we were talking about some heavier stuff that there's tragedy like every day in the news. One of the things was on Saturday last week there was a shooting. Nine people were killed in Texas. Many of you saw that. Allen, Texas, there was a, a mall, an outlet mall that got shot up. And I was reading this week, one of the people that was a hero in the story went in and was starting to, you know, try and help people get out of there and see if anybody who had been shot was still alive. And one of the stories was that he actually rolled over a mom who used her body to shield her her son, and she was dead. But when he said, when I rolled over the mom, there was this little boy, and I just said to him, are you okay? And he said, my mom's hurt, my mom's hurt. And he said, to not traumatize the kid, he took her, him, put him around the corner because he knew the mom was dead. And she died for her son. That's service. The foot washing symbolic. The extent of Jesus' love is the cross. He's dying. But not for people that, like, are in love with him. He's saying for his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, that's opposed to God. We're doing against God's plan. Enemies. Christ died for us. 
While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So let's just think about that. If we served other people just in the house of God, not even talking about in the world, not talking about an outreach or mission trip, go show those people that are headed for hell what Jesus loves, like just each other. If we just loved each other that way, the Bible says then the world will know that we're his disciples. Let's start in our house. So what if you loved your spouse like that? That you're willing to, and I just take one another, um, care for one another, be devoted to one another, weep, mourn, comfort, think more highly of the other person than yourself. Hmm. We've got lots of stories of moms doing it for kids. And when Stephanie Decker was telling her story, she said that one of the things that helped her survive as she was sitting there was she actually talked out loud to herself, said, you just got to keep going. And she said, I imagined my kids without a mom. And then she said, I imagined my husband without a wife. She goes, no, not really. I imagined my kids without a mom. And she's implying, like, oh, I'm not imagining him remarry. <laughs> well, my kids will never have another mom. What if we loved like that in our marriages to our enemies? Rather than yelling at them and showing them how wrong they are, what if we served them? That would be like another kingdom that points to an uncommon savior. The point of God's family is to reveal God's glory. And that's how we do it. See, the foundation is faith. And the family, it's the foundation for your spiritual growth. But when it's lived out, it's a pointer to who our father is. It's like when you look at a kid and you go, you're just like your dad. You've got your dad's eyes. You sound like your... What is God like? Well, if you want to know, you look at Jesus. Well, we can't see Jesus. Then look at his people. And if you want to know if somebody's faithful to God, you see, are they faithful to God's people? Jesus says to John, this is your mom. Before he's ready to pastor our church, before he's ready to mentor other people, you take care of her. You live in community with her. You serve her. No one's going to see. We're not even going to put these things in the Bible that you're going to do as you are there with her in her last days and treat her like I would treat her if I were still here. And he does that. And it transforms him to be the man that God's going to use to have an incredible impact for millennia. What's he doing with you? Who are your people? Who shows up? Who are you showing up for? God's putting people right in front of you to be your mentors, to be influenced by you. But you've got to lay your life down. Father, we come before you today and we are thankful that your son Jesus is not, not like the other saviors. Other saviors demand to be prayed to. You were praying for us at the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You were showing us, showing us what family, a vision of what could be and what should be in family when you look at somebody who's not the biological son and say, this is your mom. I want you to care for her. There are widows in our church. They don't have kids. They don't have anybody. They have us. You help us to see. There are moms here that by most definitions, wouldn't be good moms. We feel shame today. We speak truth to them. We know the enemy's plan is to get them in isolation, speak things of shame. We know there's no condemnation in your son, Jesus Christ. If they don't know your son, Jesus, I pray they trust Jesus today. No mom here has done it perfectly. But God, will you shine through them, through your grace, through your empowerment, through your Holy Spirit. I mentioned our series on judges and 
I love that verse about Gideon where you clothed him with the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, you tell us to put off the old self and put on the new. And part of that is caring about each other. I pray as a church that we wouldn't talk about living as family, that we would be family, not like family, that we would be family. That for many, the church family would be closer than their biological family, not because it's negative about them, but because we have a, a unique bond that goes beyond hair color and team preference and cultural things. That's your son, Jesus Christ, who died for people in China, died for people in Cary, died for people here in Raleigh. If you don't know him as Savior, the Bible does say, John chapter 1, verse 12, I quoted at the beginning of this message, all who believe on him, he gives the right to be called children of God. See, the thing separating you from being God's child is your sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And if you want to receive that gift, the way you take it, and we're going to give all the moms coffee today. And just go outside. I'm a mom. Give me free coffee. We've got to take the cup. Jesus offers eternal life through his death on the cross and his resurrection, but you have to take it. Romans chapter 10 says, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Surrender your life to him. Lord means he's in charge. You might disagree with him, but he's right. There are a lot of opinions, but God's never wrong. And he says he's the way to get to heaven. He's the way to be reconciled. He's the way to be forgiven. He's the way to true freedom. He's the way for you to experience life the way that he designed it. Will you give your life to him? Online, in this room, just cry out to him. Confess your sin. Ask Jesus to be your savior. And all who do, he gives the right to be called children of God. And we welcome you into his family. We're going to sing to him because he's a good father. And I say these things in Jesus' name, not because it's the way that we close prayers, but because so what I believe Jesus would pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.